Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative and creative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet these people through my work in ranch brokerage and land conservation, or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, pretty much anyone who's doing important work and has an interesting story to tell. My guest today is A.D. Maddox. A.D. is an accomplished artist who creates some of the most spectacular and memorable paintings of trout that I've ever seen. Using bright colors and unique perspectives, A.D. depicts trout and the fly fishing lifestyle in a way that's completely original, yet so authentic you'd be hard-pressed to find an angler who doesn't love her work. Her art has been featured widely throughout the fishing world, including on the cover of Gray's Sporting Journal, on Patagonia Apparel, and even on the side of Stealthcraft Drift Boats. I first encountered A.D.'s work when I moved to Jackson Hole in the mid-2000s. I'm not an art connoisseur, but I was instantly taken away with how she managed to capture the beauty and realistic details of trout with a contemporary and unconventional style. And just like her work, A.D. is a -a one-of-a-kind original. She spent years as a super competitive athlete, studied exercise physiology in college, taught herself to paint without any formal art education, and rips around back roads on a Ducati motorcycle. Despite a fun-loving and easygoing exterior, she approaches her work with a discipline and rigor that seem more fitting for a professional soldier than a professional artist. Thanks to A.D.'s outgoing and hilarious personality, we had a very fun and wide-ranging conversation. We discussed her upbringing and her parents' role in giving her the confidence to pursue art as a full-time career, and we also chatted about her many years living in Jackson Hole and how the people, landscapes, and natural beauty of that valley influenced her art. She talks in detail about the importance of facing challenges, both in work and life, head-on and proactively, with a positive attitude and relentless work ethic. Whether you're an artist or not, or an angler or not, there are many wise lessons in this conversation that anyone could apply to their work and life. Thanks to AD for taking the time to chat. Hope you enjoy. To try to keep this in line with some of the other interviews I've done for about five seconds, and then I imagine it's going to be different than, than any interview I've ever done. Um, oh, probably. Yeah, I hope so. I'm counting on it. But when you I meet know, somebody, like when you go to the fly fishing show tonight and you meet somebody for the first time and they say, what do you do? How do you answer that? What do I do? I, I say I am an artist. What and do it, you paint? And, fly fishing. What's that? Google it, man. <laughs> <laughs> so if you had to describe your art to somebody, they, they, they didn't know anything about it. How would you describe it? I say, Google it, man. <laughs> no, I, I, I would say that I'm definitely not traditional. I've definitely got my own style. I never studied art. Um, so to really give you, give you like technical terms, I don't know. I'd say it's a bit contemporary with a little, uh, you know how the cooks do it, the little dash of this and a little pinch of that and, Somewhere in between, you get something that looks like here. Look, put AD Maddox into Google and, and see those. I say I do that. I say now click on images, and that's what it is. <laughs> it really is a hundred percent unique. I, I mean, I've never seen anything like it. Like is I told it? you when we started, when we talked last week. You know, when I moved out west, I saw some of your work. I moved to Jacksonville, where you were, and I saw some of your work, and it just instantly sticks in your mind as completely unique. But at the same time. It's completely familiar because it's such a um, kind of it's a it's an accurate portrayal of these beautiful fish, and so I don't know I don't understand how you do that, how you mix the contemporary bright colors, really artistic yeah. side of things, but but it's also completely realistic at the same time. How, I mean, how did you how did I, you even I don't know. focus in it's on fly weird. fishing to begin with? Well, um, the the gallery. Well, I've always painted. I've always painted subject matter that in whatever area I lived in that would sell because I, the goal was to make a living. Obviously I had bills that I had to pay. So, um, I was intelligent enough to say, wow, I should paint what people might want in this area. And, uh, and I, I just, uh, you know, I was painting like Buffalo, elk, moose, deer, 
cowboys, Indians, you know, in the area of Jackson Hole. And um, the gallery owner, Beth Overcast, and the story has been told, you know, frequently to, to the magazines, you know, occasionally here and there. But she just kind of mentioned to me, she said, you should paint trout. And I remember my dad used to fish for him. And um, I don't think I'd even caught a trout. And so I was like, trout? I was like, God, you know, and I lived with a bunch of fly fishermen at the time. And uh, so I started painting trout on furniture because they they wouldn't hang my canvases because they had all the big artists on the walls. So I started on furniture and uh, the first piece sold like in 20 minutes for a thousand dollars, which is, you know, I, I actually really think that that's a that's something that doesn't happen quite that often it, it was really um a really lucky shot what was it was it, was it a chair time, or a coffee table or what, what was the actual piece no it was like a it was like a a credenza okay you know like a like a a sin cabinet that, that would go at the back of, of say a, a sofa or um it was beautiful but uh yeah, that's sold uh, to the best family in Jackson Hole, and <clears throat> the, it was a pretty big gallery on on uh, on the square in Jackson Hole at the time, so it, it kind of made me look really good. Uh, best Overcast just said, "I'm get painting." <laughs> I said, yeah. "Okay," so so I kept painting the trout, and of course, I kept painting the other stuff too, but. Uh, the the trout always sold so you know I, my dad taught me how to fish and you know I I knew that I had to start getting out fishing to take a look at what these things really looked like so I could paint them so a lot of my fishing just happened because I had to investigate further sure and uh start photographing I mean this is back in the days when we were in print film man yeah uh, oh yeah so is yeah, that what you would do? So, would you catch these fish and, and photograph them and then take those back or, or kind of go off of your memories or was it a combo of, of all of the above? No, no, it wasn't. It, it, early on in the beginning, I was, I was really painting by, by the photographs. So I was real meticulous about how I shot these things because I wanted the anatomy to be perfect. Um, and then as I've gone along here in the years, now I'll get the, uh, I'll nail the anatomy of the fish, but then the photo goes down because I, I just can't do it anymore. It's too slow. I have to, I've been doing them for so long. I just have to, I like the freedom of being able to paint what just the fun of just painting and not looking at a photo The once I get the layout, this piece is mine and, and I have to make it all mine. So that's, that's what I do. So and you, I really love it. Yeah. Well, I mean, you obviously, you, you've been doing it for so consistently for so long. I mean, it's, it's clear that you, you, you must love it to, to put in the amount of effort you have. I mean, cause it's, it's pretty, pretty unbelievable how, how focused it seems you've been on this. And, and it's amazing how your, your work continues to evolve. Um, if you had to look back 10 years ago or 15 years ago, and compare your work then to your work now. What would you say is the biggest change that you would that you would see or that you would notice that maybe somebody like me would not notice? Well, it's it's technical. Like um, there's when I look back. In fact, right now I've, I'm painting a piece that was painted in 2003 that didn't sell, which is really rare because all my work sells. And I was looking at this piece, going, God, man, it's hanging on my wall forever. And I just said, Ooh, you know, there's composition mistakes, a minor, because I'm usually pretty good with composition, but this one had some stuff in it that I didn't like. I took out and I've repainted it. I just finished it yesterday and, and I'm top coating it right now as I'm talking to you, I'm painting. Are you really? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I can't even chew um, gum and, and talk to anybody. Yeah. This is just a top coat, but, um, you know, it's, it's pieces can be pushed a lot further. When I look at my old work, I have so much respect for it because, because it's the map of how I've gotten where I am today. And, uh, but there's further, like I see into a piece, even from 2014, I can look at a piece and go, wow, I could have gone further. 
And that's, this is how I know when there's a stopping point, when I really look at a piece and I see that I cannot add to it anymore. And, and, and then I stop and I sign it. That's how I end the piece. I'm like, you know, I look at it and I go, there's nothing else that I see that I want to do. I'm going to sign it and it's done. How do you know that? And I don't I mean, eat, have there been times where yeah. you've gone you've gone too far, where you, you've kept painting and then you say, oh, man, I, I think I crossed the threshold there. I should have stopped that, you know, yesterday. Sure. Sure. But it, that doesn't really happen that often anymore. Mm-hmm. Really, what I'd say the when, when I look at my old work is that it wasn't painted as far as it could possibly go. So I, I would say. You know, maybe my earlier work in high school, I've overpainted a few pieces, but overpainting is not really one of my problems because I know that less is more. And, um, and, and so that, that's really what I'd say when I look at the early stuff. But, you know, for the people, you know, out there listening, you know, I tell anybody that comes across any of my earlier work, buy it. If you can get your hands on it, take it. Because the thing is about an artist is that if, if you have an artist that's sitting here doing it the rest of their life, the stuff is just, is, uh, the value builds because, uh, you know, I never put my artwork on sale on sale and, uh, it's I always increased prices. They're only going up. Yep. Um, you know, I had, it was so funny. I had a friend of mine from Jackson hole text me a picture of this, Trout, it wasn't a trout skin, it was an abstract from like 2005. It had a hole in it, and I was like, Oh my god, it was selling. They had it at some type of secondhand store, and I said, Are you kidding me? She's like, Yeah, but it's got a hole in it. And I was like, God, I don't know, I would grab it. Yeah, so you know, so when there's you- a few. Yeah. Yeah. So, so when you, you know, you, you're talking a lot about composition and, and, you know, all the, the terms that you, that you hear with art, but I know that you were never formally trained. So how did, how did you figure all that out? I mean, it sounds, I, I know you've been doing art your whole life and you you grew up in an artistic household, but, but how did you figure out some of this technical stuff? Just, just trial and error, just, um, you know, throwing it against the wall, see what sticks. Yep, that's exactly what I did. I developed and built my own style. So, all from just pushing myself to see, you know, how something would work, playing around with the paint. Um, I never wanted to be taught. It, and it's still to this day, it's a bit distasteful to me because, I'm, you know, then you're painting how somebody else has taught you how to do, but then there's certain techniques that you can learn how to do if you need help with that, but I think just for me, and I can't speak for anybody else, but, but for me, I'd rather have the, the game of trying to figure it out myself and making it all mine. Sure. Um, and cause I don't want anybody else to tell me how to do something when it comes to, to painting. Cause I obviously have a natural knack at it. Um, and, and I, I've had, I've had a couple of mentors who, um, have showed me, there's been about three of them and two of them are, um, one is a man named Kami. who's a really big international artist. He lives in Atlanta and he taught me about color. And this is early, like when I was 23, I painted for him, you know, back in the, Way back in the day, you know, I mean, early on, artists used to have apprentices that worked for him, and uh, and Kami really taught me quite a bit um, about color. And then another one was Greg McCuron, who passed of cancer, and he is he is a beautiful soul and a very very well known artist, um, plein air artist, and he taught me a lot about color and um, and my palette and adding some warmer hues. Um, and, and I just absolutely loved hanging out with this man. He was, he was really a, a dear friend of mine. Um, and then we just talked about art. We used to get together and talk about art and I'd buy him a beer. And, and he was, he was just so wonderful. 
And then, you know, John Banovich, who's an extremely famous artist, uh, the friend of the family. And John, John's helped me a couple of, couple of times, you know, quite a bit. Um, but not too much because, you know, John's, I don't know if John, I don't think John teaches people. He's so busy with, you know, his family and his career, but he's helped me out with a couple of technical points when I got myself in a little bit of trouble. I called him <laughs> so, yeah. and Greg did too. Um, when I got stuck in a point with a painting that I reached out to ask them, but you know, other than that, I've pretty much had to figure out stuff on my own. Um, a trial and error. And, you know, there's nothing like, you know, when you're working with oil to have a good set of rubber gloves and some rags, because I've painted all day on a piece that I end up grabbing the rubber gloves and doing rub outs. You know, I never let bad oil dry on mm-hmm. a piece. If it, if I work on it and I look at it and it's going, you know, this really stinks. I just get on the rubber gloves and rub out all this stuff and then start the next day to make it go right. Now that's, that's a painting disaster, but, but sometimes occasionally if you're trying to build out of your, you know, when I'm trying to do something out of my imagination and, you know, a piece goes into a, a bad direction, you gotta, you gotta, you know, not be the effect of that and just kind of, you know, causatively do or rub it out, man. Sure. Erase it. Well, that's the, and uh, it's funny hearing you say all that, you know, because the common, one of the common themes of all the people I've interviewed on this podcast, I've had a few artists and then I've had some, you know, really hardcore endurance athletes and architects and just people that are doing really interesting work and unique work. And I think one of the common themes is that they all, did not wait around for, for permission or wait around for somebody to tell them how to do something. They just dived in and tried to, and started figuring out on their own. And I think that's, that seems to be a a key to success when you're trying to do something new that nobody's ever done before, because the reality is, you know, you can read a million books and ask people, but at best you'll be repeating what somebody else has already done. And so for, I just I don't see that there's any other way around it than just to to dive in and make mistakes and figure it out. I mean, do you do you agree with that? Oh God, absolutely. Dive in, and start. You know, it's application. You can read all you want in life and write down all your goals, but if you're not doing it, it's not getting done. And and the other thing is to note that I mean, along this journey, hell yeah, there's been mistakes, but but the 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 key is is that when you make I mean, you know, example is got this one piece, I swear, three days in a row on a four by five foot canvas. I had rub out to 75% of the piece. Three days in a row, yeah. rub out. That's never happened in my life. And I got to a point with this piece where, I mean, you'd think I was crazy sitting down there talking to it. I'm like, give me a break, you little shithead. I, mean, I, was, I was pissed. and And I finally... I kept trying, you know, two days of water, one day of rocks, and then I finally went on on rocks again and got it. And it was one of the first pieces I sold of this series that went out in 2014, and I sold it for a lot of money, and it paid off all that hard work. But it's just, you know, God, I'm ornery as hell. So if, if a piece is, if I'm working on a piece, you know, it will be good. And I know that even looking at a white canvas before I start, I already know the piece is going to be good. So when I have certainty on knowing it's going to be great, then the the fun of it is is no, making all the right decisions to get it where it's going to be great because you already know it. And maybe probably another another level to that is when you get in a hole or you you start getting frustrated you've done it enough and you know, it's going to be great that, you know, this kind of frustration, this little battle you're going to have to go through, you know, it's going to, you can come out on the right side of it. So while, while it is frustrating and might drive you crazy for a little while, you know, if you put in the work, it's going to, it's going to pay off. They always do. They always do They're But that's, that's, you know, mentally, I mean, that's, that's, that's the way that I think like 
all of these, I mean, and not every piece is like this. Some pieces just paint themselves. And I'm like, oh my God, that was so easy. Some of them go really smoothly. But then if you really look at my body of work, they're, they're all very different. I don't, I don't like doing all the same paintings. Now the trout skins are different because they're, they're very familiar. That that's one painting. I can tell you that, you know, I've done a lot of trout skins and they're the tech, the techs for doing a trout skins all down. I don't have to reinvent everything, but all the rest of my pieces are a lot of inventing of a new way to do a trout, which I always do find a new way to do a trout. We've seen it time and time again. So, so I have to reinvent, you know, whereas other artists can do, you know, there's a cowboy and there's a cowboy and there's a cowboy and, and artists, some artists do run like that. I mean, yeah, they can do them different styles or, or, you know, if, if I, all I did was paint trout skins, I mean, I think I'd be pretty bored by now. Well, I think that's really cool but, that, you know, that you're down there struggling and, and going, you know, every, going through these struggles, Yet when you could very easily, you could paint those trout skins all day and, and cruise through mm-hmm. and sell them and make some good money. But the fact that you've, you know, you've, you've made it as an artist, as far as being able to have, have it as your full-time job, yet you still want to push it as hard as you can. I think that's, I think that's awesome. And I think that mindset is why you've been able to do so well as a professional artist. Not that I'm an expert on it or anything, but it seems that you love the, the process as much as you love the end result. Is that well, the process, the process, you just said it, the process is what you got to love. That, the, the building of a canvas is, you know, each step, like my most favorite is, is the second coat. The first coat's just, uh, the first coat, it doesn't matter what size the canvas is. I can cover that canvas within 30 minutes, it's covered. Because the first coat's got a, all the, the canvas, uh, it's going to show through and it doesn't really matter me what color is going down. I could care less yeah. because the, the second coat's going to start really grooving it in. And in, in, in the linen just changes as the second coat's put on. And then, then it gets a lot more like, Oh boy, you know, watch out because we're, we're looking at rub outs if it's going to be messy because I don't want to build this, this massive foundation of oil. I'm, I'm, I don't want to, you know, clump up this canvas. So, so I start watching it on third and fourth coats is when, when I really start dialing it in. But some of the whimsical, crazy stuff I do on the first and second coats is really fun. Um, but you, but I'm dialing this in as I go along Ed. I mean, it, it is, you know, it is, uh, it's all I can tell you. It's one, it's one hell of an adventure and, and, uh, I'm addicted to it. <laughs> I just love it. Yeah. Well, it, it I shows, really I mean, it shows in, in your work and it shows, you know, when you talk about it, I think it's, um, it's very clear that you, that you love it and you love all aspects of it from the, the cool parts to the to the hard parts. I mean, I think that's that's what a real artist does. You know, we were we were talking about how I I read a bunch of books about artists and the artistic um, kind of the artistic process because I think it's so interesting. It's just I, I couldn't imagine you know like going down in your studio like you do every day and and having to be that creative on on a daily basis, creative on demand. You know, what do you think about the idea of, of writer's block or artist block, this idea like you can't do anything? Do you believe in that? Or do you think that's just an excuse and you just got to get down there and, and, and get the work done no matter what? Oh, well, easy. I think it's a lack of confront. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I said it right there because anything a person can confront, they can handle, right? Uh-huh. So you can confront it. I mean, even if I'm looking at a disaster on a piece, which, you know, it does, you know, I don't want to make it sound like I have disasters all the time because I don't. But if I'm in a really rough part of a painting, I could say, oh, God, you know, I can't confront this today. I've got painter's block. This painting's going to go into the corner on timeout. Or I can sit there and say, all right, let's look at it. What's the data here? Give me the data. Scratch the emotion. I know you're pissed off. Got it. But look at the data. 
and then you start, you know, you have your, your debug, you got to debug a piece where, yeah. you know, what's off here. And, and, and as, and, and as, you know, the years go by of doing this, I can easily see, you know, having made all these mistakes through the years, I, I, I know what to avoid and what not to do. So the errors become smaller. Mm-hmm. The errors become smaller. They're not so big anymore. And even in the early days, some of the big errors, some of, I think there was one painting that was a total, total destructive piece. I mean, I was in the middle of destroying it when I came upon a, a beautiful painting. I had to stop while I was in the middle of destroying it, and it landed on the cover of Gray's Sporting Journal. Wow. So, yeah, so so before I knew it, I was covering up the whole piece with gray, and then, then I was looking at a masterpiece, and I signed it immediately, and and it was done accidentally. So sometimes a lot of, you know, it's just one, one squirrely thing that I think constant alertness of what you're painting, know when to stop and what to take out, what to add is the game of good painting. Sure. Um, for, for me, and all this is for me because, you know, we, each artist has their own tech, but, um, yeah. So yeah. you grew up in, in Nashville, Tennessee, and as a kid, did you always think you wanted to be a professional artist? No. What did you? I, I, you know, the, yeah. this, this is the, the funniest story. I mean, it's a, I'll make it real short, but I have been in art from the day that I could pick up, you know, a pen or a pencil. I have been extremely artistic my whole life, and and even painting paintings when I was studying sports medicine in college, and even in Jackson Hole in my in my late twenties, I was uh, working in physical therapy. Oh, were you really? And under, yeah, underneath my, you know, I was, it was. I was were you pretty athletic as, athletic as a kid? Trainer, huge athlete, massive athlete. What kind of sports? Uh, gym, gymnastics. You know, I dominated gymnastics in Arkansas when I was um, young, like 9, 10, 11, um, 12. I think I did did gymnastics up until I was 28. Did you really? And I mm -hmm, was also a tennis player. And then I did did a couple of triathlons and um, just obsessed with exercise for a while. And then, you know, finally just stopped. Um, rock climbing, I, I did rock climbing and yeah, that was pretty much, I kind of got into everything, skiing, I did a little kayaking and, um, just really athletic, but, but underneath my nose was this art and I really got the idea in my early twenties, 23 was when the decision was made that I wanted to be an artist. I thought it was the coolest occupation ever. And I tried to see ways that I could do it. Um, and I had a huge ego with it. You know, I don't think the ego's never been my problem with art. Um, <laughs> you, you just knew God. you had the talent. You knew if you put your mind to it, you could do it. Yeah, I knew I was good. Were from, you like that in sports early? Too? Um. Yeah, I don't think I don't think self confidence is ever an area that I've lacked in. Where do you think that uh, comes from? Because when we were talking last week, you were talking about your brother, who seems to have had a lot of success in in business. Is that something your yeah. parents um, you credit your parents with, or something you were just born with, or a combo of both? Well, I I think it's a lot of being. You know, it's a lot of. I, I grew up in a family that didn't invalidate me. Mm-hmm. I never gotten validated with my artwork. And if you think about it, if you have a kid that who anybody around him tells them that their artwork sucks or that somebody's critical that's around them all the time, while they're in their developing in their uh, developing age, uh, the developing ages, you know, where where they're trying to do something. If you have somebody that's critical that's putting you down all the time, why in the hell would you want to go do that? Yeah, you. You know, you get put down, so you think, God, I must be really bad. Well, I didn't have parents like that, and and I had teachers that were very validating of my artwork. I had my parents who absolutely loved everything that I did, 
And in the early days, my mom and dad would buy my artwork and my friends would buy it. Yep. So I had so much support that I never, I never had invalidation. So if you don't get invalidated, then you think you're pretty, you're pretty hot shit, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Right. You think, well, God, I'm really good. Well, that built, and at an earlier age, I would say I'd be more susceptible to it than now. If somebody came up to me now and told me that my artwork was bad, I would laugh in their face so hard, they'd probably run away. <laughs> you know, I'd be like thinking, okay, I'm standing in front of a person who's obviously on psych meds <laughs> or, you know, taking drugs and tripping on acid because they obviously can't, you know, look at reality, yeah. you know. But but I, I've, I've gotten to a point where, you know, sure, is there always a critic out there that could probably try to tear me down? Sure, those, those type of people exist on this planet, but... That means you made you it. Know. I think that's a yeah. sign of, I think that's a sign that if if anybody cares enough to give you a hard time, I think that means you've made it. I mean, that, that's, that just comes with the territory, I, I would imagine. Yeah. Not signs that it makes it any easier success. to listen though, to that kind of nonsense, but... Well, it's, it's signs of success. Whenever you start to get a lot of haters, then mm-hmm. keep doing what you're doing because there's a lot of people out there in the world that aren't doing that well that would love just to pick and pull you down because their lives suck. <laughs> and that's a true statement. It is true. And really successful people know that. If you don't have, you know, the goal should be to get more haters because the more haters you get, the better you know you're doing. No, I think, I think there's impending. a lot of truth to that. So you, you said yeah, at tw- 23, you decided to go all in and you were confident you could make it. Where where were you living at that point? When I was 23, I was in Atlanta and then I moved to Jackson Hole and then I was selling a lot of artwork in Jackson Hole on my own. What drew you to Jackson, um, if, if you don't mind me asking? Oh, no. My parents used to take us out there when we were kids and it, I always thought it was magical. I was real drawn to that area, something about it. Something about magical. Jackson Holes. Yeah, it's it's just it's there's just magic in the air. I don't know. It's just this it's a euphoric feeling there. Um the extremity of the weather and the beauty of the summers and the how violent the winters can be. Mm-hmm. It's just, just extreme. And and I was drawn to it. It was so rugged and wild and the people so cool and they're so full of life and adventure. And danger. Yep. I mean, there are so many sports that are done in Jackson Hole alone, I mean, that are so extreme. One error, you're dead. Yep. And it's just, God, these people are so full of life, and they still are. You know, I've got a lot of friends out there still doing the same thing, and and um, I have so much admiration for them, uh, the, the extreme athletes, and the ones that have really pushed the envelope. Um but, uh, yeah, I was really drawn to Jackson, so I had to go out there. And I was, you know, I was real outdoorsy early on. But, but this, you know, how are you going to make it? Which direction are you going to go? Well, that's the game. The game is, is how do you get known? Who, you know, which, which way do you go to go up? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Do you think being in Jackson – and being around all those really passionate people and people that are real, willing to take risks, no matter you know whether it's, it's physical or, or you know go up in the mountains and jump off cliffs with the skis and that kind of thing. Do you think being around, surrounding yourself with those type of passionate people, helped your art in a way that you wouldn't have gotten if you'd stayed in Atlanta, where you know for the most part there are a lot of people that just kind of take the traditional expected path. Oh, absolutely. I think they were, they were big contributors because if you look at these type of people I'm talking about, what do they do? They're creating life. Mm-hmm. And then they're creating life on a really high level. There's people that suck off other people to live and have them create. And then there's people that actually create themselves their, their own pathway. Yep. I mean, cause each and every person has got goals and dreams. Each person has, they do innately have these. Whether they want to acknowledge it or not, they exist. So, 
So if, if you're around a lot of people who are creating life and they're, they're going for their dreams, sure, it fuels you because you're around people. You come up with this brilliant idea and they're like, man, you should do that. Yeah, you go should for do it. that. You should go for it. Go for it. Do it. And they're sitting there jumping off cliffs. It's like, <laughs> yeah, you should do it. Go for it. You know? Oh, I've never done that. That's that's like a, you know, that's a class five, class six rapid. Class six will kill you. Oh yeah, I'm gonna do it. I'm going off that waterfall. Yeah, do it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, let's go bungee jumping. Oh, where? You know, off this bridge in Idaho with a bungee cord you made. Oh yeah. Let, okay, let's go do it. You know, it's like whoa. <laughs> it's like okay. Yeah. It's a wild stuff, you know. Um, but yeah, those those type of people were, um, you know, and, and still to this day, I love being around creators of big effects. Um, um, well, this that reminds me of something we, we were chatting about last week, is that it seems like you draw a lot of energy from other creative people, and you're, you're obviously extremely extroverted, and you, you're just a real people person, yet yeah. a lot of your profession equals going in a room by yourself and kind of struggling with yourself to come up with the, this art. How do you how do you balance that, or, or is that is that a struggle for you, or have you figured out how, no. how that works? No, it's not a struggle for me. Uh, Self discipline is the game. Um, I paint. My schedule is what is is my base. You know, I, it's impossible to generate power without holding a schedule. You got to be stable mm-hmm. to generate power. So I do that by schedule. What does your schedule look like? Um, It's it's getting up at, you know, 7 in the morning and getting going at 8 o'clock and pushing it till as late as I can, at least to 6. But I'll push it later, um, you know, 8 o'clock and then going to bed at a decent hour, 11, making sure I get 7 to 8 hours of sleep and doing it again. So, um, and I give myself the weekends to relax a bit if I want to or go play. I don't do anything socially during the week, only on the weekends, mm-hmm. unless there's an event. Um, you know, it's also keeping my keeping myself in check. You know, I don't I don't drink or do drugs and um, eat a healthy diet. You know, the main staples of keeping rudiments in. Sure. And, you know, just taking care of myself um, so that I don't have any problems with my body because I have to stand at an easel all day. So obviously eating pizza and becoming overweight is not going to help my knees at the easel. So I keep myself, (laughs) I keep myself in shape so I can stand at the easel. And, uh, and these are basic rudiments, you know, your basic ABCs of how to operate an operating basis. Have you always operated like that or, or has it been an evolution and you've just figured out over the years that this is, this is what works best? Cause I know some, you know, some artists yeah. will work from, you know, 9 PM until four in the morning or, you know, and it seems like yours is, is more of a, almost like a traditional work day for people. Um, how, how did you figure Absolutely. that out? You know, it's, it's, it's over the years yeah. finding out, it's finding out what are the, the game is finding out what is a successful action, mm-hmm. what produces the results that I want. And you find out what is the winning action and you put those winning actions in every day because statistically they've yielded some good, you know, great stats. So, it's finding out what, what works. I don't need unpredictability. What we're trying to do. I mean, my work is unpredictable as it is, yeah. you know, it's going to be great, but the process of getting there is unpredictable. And so I like to keep as many stable datums as I, as I know having these, these stable things put in every day, they're going to help me operate, uh, with predictably as much as I can while I'm doing the unpredictable. So, that's kind of a twist on words, but that's basically what what I'm doing. No, that makes perfect sense um, to me. And it, yeah. I think it stands in stark contrast to a lot what a lot of people think about professional artists. I think a lot of people, if you just ask somebody on the street, they would think that artists kind of go with the flow and they they wait to be inspired or they you know they're drinking and doing drugs or you know they're just wild. Whereas, I mean, you're you are as disciplined as 
as any, you know, discipline as some neurosurgeon who, who has to go in every day and, 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 you know, do that, do their work. Um, it seems like, it seems like it's just, a, a not what you would expect or not what the average person would expect from an artist, but I think it's awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, it, it is true they, that it, it is a, a, a common belief and I've come across this many times of, of, you know, what inspires you? Well, it, it, do you really have to be inspired to paint? Mm-hmm. That's, that's the question. Some artists would say, oh my gosh, absolutely. I have to be inspired before I can get the energy to create. Well, for me, that's not really the case. You know, come eight o'clock in the morning with it's get up and go time. So I got to turn on the create like the clock. Boom. You're on. It's showtime. Here we go. That's yeah. it. I read a quote and from some, some writer who said, um, somebody asked him, does he have to wait for inspiration? He goes, yeah, I do. But luckily it happens every single morning at 9 a.m. when I sit down at my desk yeah. and start writing. <laughs> <laughs> that is discipline. And it's also being causative over your create. Mm-hmm. You can sit there and be the effect and saying that you've got a thumb through you know, 10 magazines a day before you feel inspired to get up and, and go cause something or something's got to happen to cause you to go create. Well, that, that causation for me is the clock because the only way these cycles are going to get done, I got to do them and I got to anchor them in with the clock because, you know, that's the way our planet runs. Our planet runs on a clock. Mm-hmm. You know, time is something that is, is so I think time is so funny because, you know, the years roll on, but yet it's another day revolves around this clock, you know, Yep. and your body and your body starts aging and it gets older and you're like, you know, time, time is just, it's just change. That's all it is. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, Oh, one, one question I wanted to ask you about when, when I came across your work, when I lived in Jackson Hole and I Googled you, this awesome video came up of you ripping around Jackson Hole on a Ducati, oh Ducati motorcycle. <laughs> Tell me, do you still ride motorcycles? You know, I, I do. I, I have, I'm looking at my, my Ducati triple nine right now. It's in my studio for the winter. And, uh, I love riding motorcycles. I just don't ride as fast as I used to. I've slowed down a little bit because I'm, you know, riding around the city. Sure. Um, I used to really do some ex- excessive speeds when I lived out in, you know, Wyoming. And I could ride Idaho and Montana, but I've calmed it down quite a bit. Um, yeah, that that was a video that was taken in 2007. It'd be 10 years ago. That was a funny video. I'll put that um, on the the web page for your for this podcast so people can no, watch it. No, don't. You don't want me to? Oh my God, I, right. They'll have to I research such, it. <laughs> I was such a little actress in that when I'd act like the crazy, crazy bug artist, which was I think it was pretty funny, but um I think it's cool. It it it, it, it was definitely out of the box, which is which is something that I I definitely own. I mean I'm Yeah. <laughs> How'd you get into riding motorcycles initially? Did you ride them as a kid or or is that something you picked up when you moved out West? You know, I was on Adderall for a long time in my early years, which is a destructive uh, drug that doctors put people on, you know, for ADD, which I didn't have. And it's, it's very, it's a, massively destructive drug that I got hooked on. And when I decided to get off of that drug, my world slowed down so drastically that it was painful. Mm -hmm. You can imagine being on copious amounts of amphetamines to nothing that the motorcycle was what I used to get my speed. Oh, wow. So I, I basically um, substituted the motorcycle for um, Adderall. And 
and I rode and rode as fast as I could to get my rush. And it was a healthier outlet than destroying myself with psych meds. Sure. But I'm one of the rare cases of, of somebody that was able to get off of such a highly addictive, destructive drug, which is, you know, in, in a lot of ways, it's pretty sad that, you know, I, I took those drugs for a period of time, but I'm just glad that I came to a point where I said, you know, this is not working for me. It's very destructive and went against, you know, what the doctors thought. And I just said, I don't think this is a good way to go. I think I need to, the best way to go in life is to confront your problems and take them head on and get healthy. Sure. How old were you when when you got off that, if you don't mind me asking? Oh God, I was 35. Were you really? How did that affect your yeah. art? Did it did it affect your art oh, at all? God, yeah, it affected my art so much. It, I went through a really dark period because I was so used to being amped up on speed mm-hmm. that it this slowed me down, and then I had to confront my artwork without taking drugs. So that was a massive uh, amount of of confront that I had to to muster up to move through this really dark, dark area of my life. And, you know, where I'm sitting today with 13 years off of drugs is a beautiful, beautiful spot. That's why, you know, I take a lot of pride in where I am today because I've, you know, I fought my demons. Sure. And, and it, and it was rough stuff, but I made it through. And, um, um, have a beautiful life because of it and have my health back. Yep. Have, have my health back. That's an inspiring story. I mean, and I think it, it, it fits right in with a lot of the other things you've said about just, you got to confront, confront anything, any sort of challenge, you got to confront it head on. And you, you know, like you said, those doctors are saying, stay on it. And you said, no. And that, I think that goes back to, you know, when you're, you wanted to do the art your way and you didn't want to wait for somebody to tell you what to do. Cause you, you thought you, you know, you had an idea of how you wanted it to go. And I think you can see a or I can see a common thread the whole way through. But, um, I think that, that ability to, to really just smash through, you know, obstacles or confront them without being, you know, or at least pretending like you're not scared enough to confront it. I think that's, um, I think that's really admirable. Thank you. Yeah, I think we'd sum it up with a lot of self-determinism. Yeah. That's basically, um, you know, you you determine your course of which way you want to go, and then you've got to just smash through all your barriers. Um, and and sometimes, you know, it's a lot of reach and withdrawal, Ed. Mm-hmm. You know, you can reach and go you go towards the monster, and then you run away from him, and you come back and you get him, and you run away, and you go back and you swat his knees, and you come <laughs> back, and then next thing you know, you got his head off. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a, it's a, I know I painted a funny picture there, but but it it it's just like you go out as much as you can confront at the time, and then you retreat and just keep going, 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 and and you know I I, I find that's a really common story amongst the people that dominate who do really well in life, or they 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 go after it, man. Yeah. You got to tear. You got to tear into life and live it hard. I, if, yeah, I agree. And, and mm-hmm. they say uh, that I, must be, huh? Go ahead. I said it must be really fun for you to do all these interviews for people to hear all their stories. I love it. Well, that's the thing. That's why I do this. It's just because I meet so many interesting people, no matter what, through my work and hobbies. And, um, yeah. and I was thinking, you know, they're all just so cool and they're doing such cool stuff. And so then I've just kind of, I started recording them and then expanded it to, to people that I don't know, but I, I feel like I, I should know like you. And, uh, it's really awesome because, because there's so many common themes. And I think that theme of not listening to authority and just, you know, working hard and playing offense versus playing defense, it, it comes up time and time and time again. Oh God, I would just love to hear all the stories you've heard. I mean, yeah, there's some good ones. Yeah, um, yeah, there and and there's the the ones that climb to the top. Man, they've taken some diggers. I tell you. Oh yeah, there's no you know, way around it. There's no way around it. Uh uh-uh. Everyone gets knocked out. Life deals so many hard blows, especially yep. as you get older. 
Oh yeah. I mean, the, the amount of blows one receives can be horrific and you got to be able to get up from them and power on. Um, well, I know we're, we're bumping up on an hour here and I don't want to take any more of your time. I've just got a few quick questions that I've, I've asked other guests and it's kind of fun to compare the answers among, among all these different people. Um, the first one is, are there any books that have been meaningful to you and that you recommend to others? And it, it could be books about the American West or about fishing or just books in general that have, that have helped you with your artistic process or just kind of day to day life. Um, you know, there is an incredible book, uh, by L. Ron Hubbard called The Problems of Work. Mm -hmm. And it is, um, probably one of the, uh, yeah, that book definitely made an impact on me as far as work goes. The problems of work. Okay, cool. I'll have a link to that. It's a, it's a, yeah, it's an interesting read, no doubt. Um, he sounds like an interesting guy I, from what I know about him. Yeah, he's, I think, uh, uh, L. Ron Hubbard was, um, well, he's an incredible writer, was an incredible writer, but um, he, uh, I think Smithsonian uh, had, uh, he was like um, nominated or uh, as one of the in the top 100 most influential people on the planet. Wow. Um, yeah. So so he's he's definitely an incredible writer. Um, I've read several books by by L. Ron Hubbard, um, but the 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 data that's in the problems of work was um, is in, incredible and really. Um, there is, there's a lot of complexities that I had going on early on that got simplified with, um, um, a lot of data that I got out of that book. Um, but yeah, other than that, not really any art books or anything like that. I just, uh, cool. I'll put a link on the easel. Yeah. That's the thing. You're, you're doing it. You're not reading about it. You're doing it. Um, yeah, I'm busy doing it. That's, that's the most important thing. Um, if you had to think back and think of the, either the craziest or the most powerful experience you've had in the outdoors, it, does anything come to mind? And we've, I've had people say, tell stories for like getting chased by a grizzly bear to going on a certain hunting trip with their dad. Is there any crazy story that sticks out in your mind? Seems like you, you might have crazy stories. God, I've got crazy, a lot of those crazy stories up in Jackson Hole, like taking, taking off on a cloudy winter night up in Yellowstone, uh, going to the, what's it, Yellowstone or is Teton National Park going to his Huckleberry Hotspots? Ended up, um, God, man, that was a freaky, freaky <laughs> experience where I, all right, I brought a brand new tent and we had to, I was with, my friend Matt Combs and we were trying to go find these hot spots and it was all I could see was light and dark. So, um, that the headlamp, it, everything went wrong. My <laughs> headlamp wasn't working. His was, we had a brand new tent. We couldn't find out where to put the tent because we didn't know if the dark was water. The light we knew was snow ended up sleeping on snow and I nearly died of hypothermia <laughs> And the tent was a disaster to set up because I didn't know how to set it up and it was brand new and he didn't know how to set it up and his headlamp was going out. And, and in the morning we, we, we could never find the hot, the, the hot pools. And in the morning they're right there in front of us. It was like, <laughs> what the hell? It was like, it's one of those disaster stories, uh, uh, you know, Oh hell! I was in my early twenties. You do crazy stuff like that. Oh yeah. Well, there's a there's a quote by Yvonne Chouinard, the guy who started Patagonia. He says it's not an adventure until something goes wrong. So I mean, that's um, oh god. That's a Everything example. went wrong. Um, we, we didn't know what we're going to run into out there. It was a it was a nightmare. I'm nearly freezing to death. <laughs> um, 
if God, if you had to pick one location in the West that is your favorite, and it could be a town, it could be a specific lake or some ranch or a stretch of river, is there one spot that pops out in your mind that's your favorite place? It's a hard question. You know, it, it's really easy for me because it's going to be in Grand Teton National Park. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like right below the Tetons, there's a beautiful place called String Lake. That area, Virginia Lake is. Yep. And um, that to me is, is um, I, I don't know if you could get any, you can't get any more beautiful than that area. Uh, it's it's comparable to the South Island of New Zealand, but then again, you know, I haven't been all over the planet. Just, I think that Jackson Hole and that whole area is, in my opinion, probably one of the most beautiful areas I've ever seen in my life. That's why I stayed there for so many years. I agree with you. I, I don't think there's, there. I've been all over the West and it's hard to beat that valley. I mean, it's just, it's spectacular. And that's I know that yeah. exact I know that exact area you're talking about, and um, I mean it's just it's hard to get your head around. No, it's just it's like I'd said before, it's magical. The it feel really of is. the air and the aesthetics is high, and then you have that cobalt blue falling from the sky, hitting that you know rosemary color rock, and it's just. <clears throat> that's what makes them so purple looking the blue and the red. Oh yeah. And you get yeah. the purple mixture of the Tetons and it's just, it's a, uh, uh, comparable to the South Island around Queensland where the remarkables are. And, um, it's just New Zealand. That's, that's the other place that I would just say, Whoa, I've never you know? been there, but I, it's on my list. It just sounds unbelievable. It's jaw-dropping, but there's other places around the planet, because, God, there's everywhere in the world that I haven't been, but a few places I have. Um, I'm just hoping that I'm, you know, going to be able to somehow live next life somehow so I can go check out a lot lot of other places. (laughs) I'm with you on that. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody ever talks about that, but, uh, yeah, so, you know, I I still want to get down to Argentina, um, I'm going to be going to the Keys in May, it looks like. I just uh, confirmed a trip when, right before you called. And um, there's a lot of places. But right now, I'm just trying so hard to get a lot of these originals done. Um, we'll see where I get. I bet you'll make progress. What, it seems like you, you get stuff done. What about you? Where's your favorite place that you've ever been? Oh, man. It's so hard. You know, I asked that question, and I I really don't have a good answer. But I would say I think Jackson Hole is is about as special as you can get. And that was where I – yeah, that was where I moved. When I moved – I moved to Jackson Hole like September 15th. And so when I pulled into the valley, the leaves were changing, and I drove around that first night and heard elk bugling. And, I mean, you just can't get that out of your head. I love Crested Butte as well. Um, and then here in Boulder, you know, Green Mountain is, is, uh, three blocks from my house and that's kind of my normal kind of training run is going up. And so I've gotten to where I love Green Mountain in Boulder. And so, um, but I can't pick one. Yeah. Well, Caribou, Caribou is another beautiful place up above you in Boulder. Yep. And then also, you know, Rocky Mountain National Park in the fall. Is, oh, it's, that's unreal. Is, is unreal. That's another one that shoots high up there. I used to have to have to go there when I lived in Boulder, but I went up to Caribou a bit. I liked it up there. Netherlands up there was gorgeous, but um, now it's hard to beat Jackson, man. It really is. hard to beat Teton National Park, Yellowstone. Um, it, it, those are they're just so raw and rugged, and and. People cannot impinge on those parks. Mm-hmm. The roadways can impinge, and I know some of the trails have got wear and tear, but there are places where you can get lost and, you know, halfway damn near close to dead. Oh, it's the real you know, deal. Yeah, it's not, it's, not a little, it, yeah. it's not a little hike out in, you know, some 
state park. I mean, it is it is the real deal. Yeah. Those mountains are the real deal, and that wildlife is real. I've, yeah, I had some crazy crazy experiences up in there. That that was a very uh, quick introduction into how serious it is out there. <laughs> um, yeah, those those grizzly bears can get gnawing at your toes too. So there, <laughs> there's there's definitely uh, it. It is you know you said it there. It's a real deal out there. Out and and I mean, if you look at the magnitude of, of Yellowstone, not to mention it's probably what the biggest caldera there is on the planet, isn't mm-hmm. it? I think I so. I believe. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you, you look at that place. I mean, I think then that's a lot of the reason why it's so magical. There's all the energy that's, that's running through that park in that area. That's a good thought. I've you never, know, the never thermal it activity, and it's so close to the core. And I mean, the, the, not the core, but like the, the thinnest layer, thinnest layer of the planet there, you know, with, it's just, a lot of activity going on. Um, yeah, I think something's in the air in that air, in, in Jackson Hole. I had the hardest time leaving that place. <laughs> I bet you did. I mean, I, yeah, I'm going up there in, in two weeks. I can't wait. I'm so excited. I hadn't been in a while, so it's going to be fun. Um, all right, final and question. No, oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, wait. Then the other thing I want to tell you is that there, the, the, and I don't know if another, a lot of other Jacksonites would believe or would agree with what I'm saying. It's like the, the skies open June. You got the rain, and then the skies open up in July and August. Are the most beautiful months ever on the planet is in, in Jackson Hole, and then all the in those two months, you get amnesia about how bad the other months were in the winter. I agree with you. And you go in, you go in for another cycle of winter. We're like, oh God, it's cold and it's all dark, and it's like, oh, eight months of winter, and then. Those two months of, of beauty, you get amnesia. I completely agree. I, I, I 100% agree with that because those two months are, you know, it's light from, you know, 4.30 in the morning till 10 o'clock at night. And you can yeah. just go out and, I mean, it, you can do everything. You work all day and then still get in hours of biking or hiking or running or whatever, fishing. I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. um, yeah, God, that place yeah. is awesome. Um, maybe one day I can... When I make my fortune, I can buy a house there and, and retire there. There you go. <laughs> so, there you go. Um, so how can people connect with you? Obviously, they can Google you, but all right, you got website, social media, all that kind of stuff? Uh, ADmatics.com. Yep. And I'm definitely on Facebook, ADmatic Studios on Facebook. Uh, actually, if you go to my website – the front page it'll have all my social media there to click on and follow me and and i've got new originals coming out that will be under my original section on my website and then i've you know i've always got prints going on canvas and paper uh i've got rugs that are area rugs that are available and i'm i've got uh, beer mugs coming soon and plates and coasters and linens and then the uh, Montana Fly Company carries a lot of my stuff on uh, iPhones and, you know, uh, thermoses and, and different things like that. Uh, Incognito.com has got my clothing line for um, fleece pullovers and tights and beanies and um, it's all really cool stuff. It's I, I'll have links to everything so people just go to the web webpage and click through. But yeah, you, you've got some really really cool stuff on your webpage. But right. Ed, you got to stay in touch with me. You're so cool, man. <laughs> well, thank you for doing You're this. So this was really fun, fun to talk to. Oh my gosh, I have to put a face to the name. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast, and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me, and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, If you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, 
and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading, or just go to Mountain and Prairie, and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, You can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.